Hey everyone! Welcome to the RUF at TC podcast. RUF is a community on campus learning about who Jesus is and what he has done for us. For more information about and ways you can support RUF at TCU, please visit ruf.org slash TCU. Well, I'll start by saying this, that her warning words hurt, but they likely, likely saved my life and most certainly a lot of pain. Why? Because they were given in love. I'm referencing a story from my high school teacher, a woman by the name of Miss Brown. It'd be awesome if she listened to this podcast. It'd be really cool to, to know that. But I'll never forget one year when I was a junior. I was a junior in high school, and she stopped me in the hall. I'd had her for freshman year of high school. And she stopped me in the hall off to the side, and she said, Ryan, I've just heard some things going on in your life. I'm not trying to get you in trouble. I'm not trying to tell you that you, you know, are some sort of bad kid. But I am concerned. I'm concerned for the trajectory of your life, that if you continue along this path, things will not end well. And I did not want to hear that. But I'm so glad she spoke it to me all these years later. Think, too, of words as well, not just like Mrs. Brown's, but I think as well of my wife, Laura. When she gives me words in a little bit less heavy fashion, they are words that are given to me in love to be able to warn me. She just says things like this, uh, uh, Ryan, um, you know, you're driving a little too close to the curb over there. Oh my goodness, the lanes are really tight here. Ryan, Ryan, watch out. <laughs> Maybe you've had a, something like that too, a backseat driver that lets you know where, you know, gently will say, stop sign, uh, red light, you know, where it catches you right in the middle of something that you didn't notice and you pump or tap your brakes really quick. Those are words of warning, are they not? But they're words of warning given what? To preserve life. They're words of warning to bring you up into safety, as it were. You see, it's like when good friends as well, after a night out perhaps, it's the same words that are spoken when they say, hey, do you mind if I have the keys? Or, you know what, I think we maybe should call Uber for you. Can we do that? Those are words of warning, you know. But they're given in love. And even the invitation to get up off the couch and go for a run, or to go lift, or to go do yoga, is a tacit, tacit warning, small as it might be, to come be healthy. All of these things are given to us in love. Have you ever experienced somebody like that? Have you ever experienced somebody's words in that way to do that very thing? At our best, don't we? We receive their words as expressions of love. But these words also can be seen in some ways as as being hard to hear. What does all this show us? That real love includes, rather than excludes, hard words. In fact, to really love someone means risking hard words, both in the speaking and in the hearing. When, 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 I don't know if they'd say it that way, but when... Well, when the beloved is in danger of being harmed. You see, love, care, friendship simply isn't all encouragement and doting on. Love will at times say hard things. And here's the thing. It's not just this way in your life and in my life. It's this way too. It's this way too for these, for these original hearers of the book of Revelation. Let's remember who they were for just a moment. 
and what they were up against in life. We said, first of all, that many, first, were facing persecution for their faith. Families were being torn apart. They were being cut off from other parts of culture. Why? Because they believed in Christ. You see, if Jesus was right, and I believe that He was, many would lose their place in their own families because of their faith. And not only were those people individuals, were there individuals facing persecution, a second group of individuals were compromising as well, weren't they? They were compromising in their Christian profession, believing they could have one foot in Christ in the church and then one foot in the world. They had, as we saw, lost their first love, becoming complacent and listless in their love for Jesus and their neighbor. In short, following Jesus had become a chore. And worse yet, it had become a bore. You see, something not worth lifting a finger for. You see, they are the ones that Revelation 14 comes to. But they, like us, knew both the fear of persecution, no matter how light or severe, and the force the force of boredom in their hearts and the dangerous power of both, here it is, to pull us away from following Christ. It is in the face of this danger that John gives them, believe it or not, encouragement and hope tonight in Revelation 14. And here's the thing, where you face that, where you are faced with the costliness of following Jesus, John does the same thing for you as well. Verse 12 acts as the highlight, the pinnacle of the text. And I'm going to go ahead and just read it in short. It says this. Endure. Keep going. That's what Jesus is telling us by His Spirit through the Apostle John tonight. But the way, and there it is, the way that He urges us on, well, that's where things get very interesting. Shocking even. So let's take a look at what God says in His Word to us to encourage us to persevere. There are two primary ways. And like a good friend or teacher or parent, God demonstrates His love for us first with warnings of judgment. With warnings. Let's take a look at what I mean. You can look up the screen for that main heading there. There will just be two tonight. Take a look with me at these verses 6 through 11. What did John tell us about? Well, he he told us about three angels, and each of them has a message of judgment along with them, each depicting uh, like a the final judgment whereby God will make all things right and new. Now hang with me on this for a second. You are going to have to come back. You're going to have to come back for the rest of the series to hear about that beautiful picture the way that God is putting the world back together. That will come in the next couple of weeks. But for now, you must hear what he is saying in verse 14. Look at these, I mean, these chapter 14. Look at these three angels there, the first one there. What does that first angel say? Well, in verse 6 and 7, it tells us. He says this, worship God. Make Him the supreme allegiance in your life, in short. Why? Well, do you catch it? Because judgment is coming for everyone and anyone. But you'll notice too that's not all that it says. Did you catch this? He says what? He says that he flew overhead with an eternal gospel. That gospel is good news. And you might be saying, well, how in the world can good news and judgment go together? How does that work itself out? 
Well, the text is telling us that there's something good, much like I've just tried to illustrate, that good news is in the midst of judgment. That words of judgment are warnings. They're warnings. They're, they're don't go there. Don't be like this. Don't live like this. This, this danger. And the angel is saying that here. And each subsequent angel will increase the intensity. Let's take a look at the second one. There's going to be more on this next week as we look at it, but the second angel says this. His message of judgment is what? Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Now what in the world does that mean? Well, it means this. About 580 some odd years earlier, the nation of, of Babylon had moved from the east into the west to destroy the city of Jerusalem and overtake the land of Judea. They took the people there, the Jews there, back to Babylon, and they lived in exile there. And what became part of the Christian consciousness by the time of Jesus was that Babylon became a symbolic name-label moniker for all world systems that were set up opposed to the purposes of Christ. Does that make sense? It was about a world system. It was a way of living in the world. And for John's readers, the nation was not national Babylon, but instead it was Rome. It was the state. They were living underneath Rome's thumb. And the point is, is that Rome and all other powers just like it are coming to an end. That's what he's saying. And that therefore, if you've lined yourself up with it, if you find your home in Babylon, no matter what it looks like, even right here in the United States, even right here at TCU, the message of warning is it's coming to an end. It's coming to an end. It will not last. That kingdom, the city of man, will fall. And we'll look more at that next week. Thirdly, the third angel has what is the most severe warning to us. These are sober words. For they depict, right? They depict everlasting, I'm just going to say it, everlasting punishment in hell. We have to talk about this. I would like to skirt over it tonight. It would be way easier for me to not say it. But here's the thing. We believe that God has spoken this. And that where God speaks, we ought to listen, no matter how hard it might be to our sensibilities. So what is this angel saying? Before we do that, I'm going to give you a couple reasons why we need to talk about this. We need to talk about this because the Bible does. In fact, I want to play a little game tonight of uh, who said it, okay? Who said it? So I want to read these for you real quick. These are descriptions of fire, right? And they all come from the Bible. A fiery furnace, weeping and gnashing of teeth, outer darkness, the worm that does not die, eternal punishment, unquenchable fire, and being cut into pieces. Who said these things? The most loving man you ever met. The man who championed the poor. The man who loved women in ways that no other person would have. The one who was a champion for the outcast. Who was it? Every single one of these words are from the lips of Jesus. So why do we talk about hell? Because Jesus does. In fact, no other speaker in the New Testament talks more about it 
than Jesus does. Why? Because it's so important. As we'll see in the rest of this talk, it is so critical. But let's take a look at what he's saying. He is saying this. Now, I'm going to try to explain some of this, this idea of the mark of the beast and all that. Let me help you walk through this for just a moment. Take a look with me at verse 9. If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand. Now, listen, this is imagistic language. And what this is talking about is this is talking about identifying or identifying with anything apart from Christ and therefore it being anti-Christ. This is not about computer chips in your brain, okay? This is not about like getting tattooed a little barcode on your wrist and that forever marks you as somebody who is a mark of the beast. No, it's symbolic language to say identifying, in that sense, marked, okay? Being marked with something. And the point is, is that anybody who aligns themselves with the principle opposed to Christ is himself or herself opposed to Christ. Jesus is drawing up, again, by his Spirit here through John, the dichotomy of every person that's ever walked the face of the planet. You are either for Jesus and His purposes in the world are you against, or you are against Him. There is no third option. There is no middle ground. And there is no overlap between the two. It is one or the other. That's what He's saying. And for those who are set up, set up um, against Him, I'm going to lean in just a little bit and I want to be... I want to be as sensitive as I am firm. What this text is saying is that the wine of God's wrath is forever poured out on those who are set up against Him. People say, is it literal fire, Ryan? And what I like to remind them is it's imagistic language. It's likely not fire. People exhale. Thank goodness. But remember, it's imagistic language of something far, far worse. What does fire do? It disintegrates. It causes things to break down, to crumble into loss. And that's the picture that John is giving us of what hell is like. Notice as well that it goes on forever and ever, he says. Forever and ever. Now, I'm telling you these things in a sense to sort of make you anxious in your seats in a way that's make you sober up for a moment and to listen to this because it's imperative that we do for reasons we'll see in just a moment. But let me address something for just a moment here. Many people who want nothing to do with Christianity, want nothing to do with Christianity because of what I've just said. And I would just like to say that if I'm in your brain a little bit, the objection might go something like this. There is no way that I can believe in a God who judges and punishes in hell. I think it's a fair question. But as you are considering things, can I get you to consider your objection for just a moment? We talked about this several weeks ago where I asked this question. And I'm going to phrase it from a picture, a word picture from a 
uh, an author by the name of Tim Keller in his book, The Reason for God. He talks about this. He says, he met with a woman after a talk much like this. And she gave that same thing. I don't know if I can believe this. I can't believe in a God who judges like this. And he says, well, can you believe? Do you doubt a God who is gracious and perplexed? She went, what? What do you mean? Do you, do you doubt or do you have problems with a God who forgives? And she says, no, of course not. She says, well, I want you to know that in other parts of this world, in other parts of even the United States, there are people who find more offensive a God of grace than a God who would judge sin. So are your sensibilities better than theirs? And, like a good liberal New Yorker, she said, of course not. He says, well, I want you to consider that. I want you to think about that. How your sensibilities aren't the trump card, but the scriptures themselves are. And, if that's the case, then there's maybe something that we have to learn and to grow from. Again, I'm not asking you to believe what I believe, but I'm trying to give you a case for why the scriptures speak is what is plausible. It's plausible what the scripture is speaking about. And so I want to keep moving on, but I want to say this. The image of hell, I think, is helped too by the words of, again, another favorite of mine, a man by the name of C.S. Lewis. Now, I have to be careful because C.S. Lewis speaks about hell, and we're going to look at the screen in just a moment, in a way that only captures part of the way the Bible talks about it. And I just want to show you, I want to show you what he, is, what he has to say. Listen to his words here on the screen. In the long run, the answer to all those who object to the doctrine of hell is itself a question. What are you asking God to do? To wipe out their past sins and at all costs to give them a fresh start? Smoothing every difficulty and offering every miraculous help? But He has done so on Calvary. To forgive them, they will not be forgiven. To leave them alone, alas, I'm afraid that is what He does. Then he goes on and he says this, The damned are in one sense successful rebels to the end. The doors of hell are locked on the inside. They enjoy forever the horrible freedom that they have demanded and are therefore self-enslaved. Lewis is saying, and he goes on to say in other points, that hell is the natural outcome of the deepest desires and the wants of our hearts. And in the end, there will only be two people, two types of people. Those to whom, those to whom, man says to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says, thy will be done. Sobering news. I fully realize that. And therefore, all of these warnings and judgments lead into and flow to verse 12. A call to persevere, to press on, to hear, to listen, to sober up so that we might walk faithfully with God. But that's not all there is to say. I told you there was something else. It's not just warnings of judgment, but verse 13 shows us as well promises of blessing. Take a look there at the promises of blessing. The promises of blessing. Verse 13, he says, And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Here's the thing I want you to see. I want you to see that God not only motivates by warnings 
but He he motivates by promises of blessing. And this is what you have to hear me say. It is deep within the heart of God to want to bless. Do you know what blessing is? Blessing is not some cheap word. It's not, you know, it's not just the name for dinnertime prayers. But blessing is a state of happiness. It's God's own happiness given to mankind. It's what the Psalms speak about over and over again. Blessed is the one who. Bless, it's, the, it's the Beatitudes, right? If you remember that from, Mark, from Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall see the kingdom of heaven. This is the image. It's one of God's favor, one of God's delight, one of God's enjoyment in you and in me. And the picture is here that this too is meant to drive us to keep on and to press on. And so this is what I hope you'll see. One friend of mine puts it this way. Well, you know, when we ask the question, how do those folks sort of get in heaven that this is speaking about here in verse 13? Was this like all the perfect people sort of showed up Then they closed the door behind the last one entering and said, whew, good people in, bad people out. Is that the Christian picture of this? No. Absolutely not. I mean, I want you to hear this. There will be no good people in heaven. Does that rock your world? There will be not a single good person in heaven. There will be humble people in heaven. And what I hope you'll understand too is this. That means there'll be a lot of, quote, good people in hell. Moral people. Kind people. But because of their pride and having never bowed the knee to King Jesus, that's what got them there. What I hope you'll see is, is that God delights to bless. And the promise here, no matter whether it be with a life filled with... um, assaults and threats from the outside, that the promise here is what is engraved on many a tombstone, that there is blessedness in dying in the Lord. And if you were struggling, if you had a knife at your throat, if your children were being ripped away from you, to know that promise is everything. It's everything. And it's the same for you and me too. That whatever you're facing, I don't care what it is, whatever cost you pay for following Jesus, the Spirit looks at you and says, blessed. Blessed by God. You will be blessed. That is the great promise that comes to us. How do we know it? How do we know that we can be blessed? Well, I'd like to show you how. Go back up in the text with me for one moment and read that line right there where in verse 10, he says that he will drink the the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger. Let me color that picture in for you. There's a cup full of wine. The drinker is drinking it and the image is that they are staggering drunk from taking in all of the wrath of God. That's the picture. And once they drink it down, more wine fills the goblet. And once they drink that down, more wine fills the goblet. And it's an eternal drinking. That's the image. 
How in the world is that helpful? On the night that Jesus was betrayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was praying. Do you remember? And when he was praying, he prayed three times for something very specific. He asked that the Father would take something away from him if the Father would so allow it. He prayed what? Father, if it be your will, will you take this cup away from me? What cup was it? It was the cup he was about to drink. The cup of God's wrath. And the silent answer was no. And you ask yourself the question, why is Jesus, God incarnate, the most perfect human being that's ever lived, that loved better than anyone else, why is he drinking the cup of wrath? Because there's another cup. And it's all in the Psalms, and we read it tonight. You remember me saying in the beginning? You hold up the cup of God's blessing. It's the same cup that's in Psalm 23. My cup overflows. It's the same cup in Psalm 16. That the Lord is my portion, my cup. And the picture is what? That there is a cup of blessing. And the reason that Jesus is drinking the cup of wrath for you and for me is so that you and me might drink the cup of God's blessing. Is that not profoundly good news? Here's what I want you to hear. As a cup of wrath with our name on it. My question for you is, who will drink it? Who will drink your cup for you? Will it be you? Or will it be Jesus? And don't you want the cup of blessing? <clears throat> the cup of blessing that we've already spoken about. That's what Jesus gives to us. I want to close with a story about the importance of this and why this is so important. And I hope that you will hear it uh, loud and clear. Many of you, do y'all... Uh, do y'all know who the comedy duo, they're in Vegas a lot. Their names are, it's Penn and Teller. You know what I'm talking about? Penn and Teller, Penn Gillette. I don't know what Teller's first name is. I mean, last name is. Um, there's, they, you've seen their faces a lot. They're magicians and the whole deal. Well, anyways, uh, Penn Gillette is part of the duo. And um, he is a tall, loud, boisterous presence. He's very outspoken in character. And off screen, uh, it's known that he is a professed atheist. Well, he tells the story of an audience member meeting up with him backstage after a show. And this man was a Christian, sort of a backstage encounter. But Penn tells us that he wasn't, that that Christian was not obnoxious or rude. Penn says that he sensed that this man genuinely cared for him by the way he looked him in the eyes when he said this. He said, Penn, um, I, I want you to have this. It's a Bible. And I wrote a little note in there if you ever want to contact me to talk about it. Now at this point in the video, I'm thinking Penn is going to go off on this guy and roast this guy for being a Christian. But instead, the opposite happens. Penn goes on to say that he really appreciated this man doing what he did and caring for him the way he did. And listen to this comment. This is Penn's own comment. He says this, he says, if you are someone who believes that you have the message of life, which is what this man, man believed, 
How much do you have to hate someone to not tell them about it? I'd like to say that Penn became a Christian. He didn't. At least not yet. But if an atheist can see that, I hope that we begin to fill up your heart just a little bit about the kindness of God to you right here, right now, on this very night. Not only does Ryan love you in some sense, grateful for each of you, but more importantly, friends, Jesus Christ came to die for sinners. And he does it because of love. And the fear of hell will never keep you out of it. Only love can do that. Only love, only your, only seeing Christ's love for you at the level of your heart will that ever change your heart to just being a good moralist, a good person, paving the way to hell. So what's my hope for you tonight? My hope is that you will see on the cross how Jesus comes. That on the cross, how Jesus dies for you and for me. That you and me might be able to drink all of the cup of the Lord's blessings. This is an invitation. Come, drink, enjoy, delight. Jesus loves to save sinners. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, sobering words from your scripture. Come, we pray, that we might see Christ for us, that we might see what Christ has done for us on the cross, him drinking all of the wrath of God to the very dregs, down to the last drop that we might experience your presence and your blessing. Thank you, Jesus, for doing that. May it move us, we pray. And having moved us, may it cause us to do what that first angel said, to glorify you, to praise you, to lift your name up, and to delight in you in all aspects of our life. We pray this for your sake. Amen.